0: Uh, as we go to the scripture lesson this morning, um, these are familiar words, and I know it's October, and we don't usually hear these words until sometime, usually at Christmas. This is out of the second chapter of Luke, but it helps us understand the beginning of Jesus's life and how others recognized him for what he was, and how maybe then we need to recognize what he is and was, and. The importance of ritual sometimes in the midst of it all. Okay.
1: After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. <clears throat> there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Faniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of eighty four, She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Holy Wisdom, Holy Word. Thanks be
0: to God. So not to begin a sermon by making people uncomfortable, but, you know, the incredible thing about Jewish ritual, um, and particularly that ritual that begins after eight days, and that ritual of circumcision, that, that marking of that human being as a child of God, And there are things in our lives that help us remember, that mark us as a child of God, and that help us become a part of a greater body to do God's work in the world. And it's phenomenal, and this is an example of what's coming around communion. But I want to talk a little bit more about some of the history of World Communion Sunday because I think it will help us understand of where we are right now in a journey of faith, not just as a church, but also as a denomination, as Christians, and, and particularly in the world, and particularly right now. World Communion Sunday began in 1933 in a small Presbyterian church called Shadyside. And it was the idea of one person. Who came to the pastor and basically said, I have this idea that what we do is share in communion um, with others around the world. And the church thought that was a great idea. And so, uh, kind of, they began to celebrate World Communion Sunday on that first Sunday of October. Well, by 1936, then, uh, world, Com- Commun- world Communion Sunday uh, began to spread. And by 1936, the whole Presbyterian Church of the U.S. adopted it. It continued to spread. By 1940, the World Council of Churches took it on and said, this is a great idea. Let's begin to celebrate it in multiple denominations, including the Methodists, and it became officially World Communion Sunday across the globe. Well, somewhat naively... I thought, well, of course, because uh, in 1933 and 1936 and 1940, basically the U.S. was, was filled with religious people and that pretty much everybody attended church. No. As a matter of fact, in that period of time, it was a time of the lowest church attendance in history. Somewhere between 33 and 37 percent of all citizens of the United States were attending church. That changed a little bit later. But it was remarkable to me, particularly given what was going on in the country and in the world. I mean, think about it. 1933 are those first years as things begin to shift out of the roaring 20s, and, and the Great Depression is just beginning to appear on the horizon. By 1936 it has taken hold and by 1940 the U.S. had or the world really had kind of to some extent recovered from a world war and a young leader was emerging in Germany who desired to conquer the world at the expense of potentially millions upon millions of people. And that began to grow. And finally, what was most noticed, I think, was the church, in the midst of all of that, was strangely quiet. Strangely quiet. And yet there it was, World Communion Sunday, which began to emerge during that time. then came... The the 40s and then came 1954 and really from 1954 to 1964, uh, you know, we we know what happened. Babies. (coughs) Let's close in prayer. No, I mean, that's when the baby boom was born. And what happened then is, you know, it was though church exploded and to some extent believing sociologically that it was in response to... All of those events that were happening, including the Depression and World War II. And families were moving from the country into the cities. That's where the jobs were. And and this baby boom began. And what happened in the result of that, our conference treasurer, you know him, Bran Henshaw, was just nodding his head when I got to this point at first service. That's when we built all those buildings. I mean, if you look around the greater Seattle area at United Methodist Churches, just go down to the university district, look across the street from the university, just south of 45th, and there is this monstrous building that right now, this morning, will have somewhere around 135 people in it for worship. Guess when it was built? In that area. Facility after facility. Why did they build them? Because... uh, not only were the babies booming, but religion was booming. But even in that, what was surprising to me was that even in that era, only 57% of the populations were attending church. But what was going on was something so different and so beautiful in that churches began to pick up the role of a social conscience, churches began to pick up the role of helping the next generations to learn an ethic, to learn laws, to learn what it meant to be a human being, to learn what it meant to have a relationship with Christ or or, or understand God in any way. And it boomed. And guess what? 1960-what? Was this church born? Right there. And here we are. Here we are. But there are other things that are going on now. There are some things that are a little disconcerting and concerning to me. Somewhat overwhelming things. Is First of all, let me go back to the sociological piece of it first and say that what happened then in the 1960s is that many of us who grew up in that time began to wear a lot of rainbow stuff and flowers in our hair and began to question the whole idea of religion and began to ask question upon question, particularly in response to what was going on in the world at that, at that time. And those huge churches of the 50s and early 60s began to be in decline. But here's the, the deal. How often do I hear today that the mainline churches are in significant decline? Well, I I went back and researched that. I wanted to see what some of the Gallup polls were saying about that, so, so I looked at it. And beginning in about 1970 to 1974, what began to happen is church attendance began to fluctuate, but what happened at the same time was do I believe in something greater than myself do I believe that there's a power in the universe began to rise and, and by the way even in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> i had a great conversation with our superintendent last week our, our new superintendent rich lang and we were talking about aldersgate's role again in the district and in the area and and We are talking about the fact that this area has been identified as the "nun" zone And I don't mean N-U-N. That there is no really religion. There is really no faith. There is really no understanding. There is no kind of trust in the greater church. And yet what we're finding is that is absolutely not true. It's absolutely not true. We have growing populations in this area that desperately want to be involved in a community, a community of trust, a community where they can bring their children to learn what they were kind of learning in the 50s, that there is something beyond ourselves, that we are a part of the human race, that we do take action, and we have to take action because there are things going on around us that need our attention as followers of Christ. And there are. There are. And what I found, the other thing is we look at Jesus and we look at the life of Jesus and we look at the time in which he lived is, you know, my classes will tell you, um, Jesus was deeply embedded in a time of incredible religious and political upheaval. And part of what helped him become what he was, was his feeling that he needed to respond to some of those things. I think of the church then finally in the 1950s and 60s beginning to turn and respond to the needs that were going on in the world and realize the, the absolute inhumanity that happened in World War II. And the church began to respond because of people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who gave up their lives for this to help the world understand what had really happened and that there has to be a response to it. I am a newspaper reader. My name is Brad, (laughs) and I read the newspaper.
1: (laughs) Thank
0: you. And I read it every day. And after we got back from the ride yesterday, I I read Saturday's paper. And in Saturday's paper, it listed not only the kind of bio of the young man who chose to shoot those folks at Emqua Community College but it went through the list of all nine of those who had been killed and their stories. And how can you read something that like that and not be influenced or affected by it? And one of the other things that they did in the paper is they went back through the 9 or 10 or 12 incidents that did not include the shootings in Marysville. Every school shooting that had happened in these last, I mean, really beginning with Columbine and coming forward. And how are you not moved and touched by that? Then this morning, getting up, I get up fairly early on Sunday morning so I have a chance to look at the paper and there it was that Kabul, Afghanistan and, and... the bombings that happened in Kabul, uh, and the couple of bombs or missiles that kind of missed the target and hit the hospital. That was that was the Doctors Without Borders location, and there are varying numbers, some of them saying 180 who were killed. And I read the paper, and you guys know, many of you know where I am politically, and and I, I and and yet. I read the response of the U.S. government, and you know I don't talk politics from the pulpit, but I read the response of the U.S. government that caused it collateral damage, that that named it as collateral damage at a medical facility, and it broke my heart. There was no apology. There was no situation that said, yeah, you know what, we we feel for these families. Nothing that said that. And then in watching all of this over the the past few weeks, hoping beyond hope that somewhere we'd be able to find a response from the church, capital C. And it's hard to find. That on the heels of the Russian bombing in Syria and the refugees that are scattering from there. It broke my heart to think that here was this young man in Roseburg who was able to purchase seven to nine weapons and yet a history of mental illness. And we won't go into where I stand on the NRA and all that, but but I just I I thought there's something wrong here. And I believe in the rights of human and I believe in the Constitution and I believe in all of those things. But there's something wrong here. And then I thought of this World Communion Sunday. And thought again about Jesus. And all of those kinds of things that were happening all around him. And yet, here was a young man, probably 27 to 30 years old, a young man who chose to step up and put himself into harm's way and confront those things. And then I thought of us here this morning. This is the year, friends, where we need to go farther. This is the year where we need to step out farther. This is the year where we become, every single one of us becomes, the eyes and the ears and the In in, in whatever place you stand, social conscience of Christ. And we have a church filled with Republicans and Democrats, progressive and conservatives. And one of the things that makes this place so wonderful and so beautiful is that we can talk to each other and disagree with each other and yet stay at the table and by the time we're walking out, we're patting each other on the back. And I love that about this place. And we can get better even about that by offering that to the community. But we have got to take some stands that spread us even farther beyond our doors. And I'm going to come back again and saying, I'm not going to be apologetic about this anymore. Look outside at this property. I told you last week that I, I went out and met and greeted a bunch of folks, men, young men and women, probably 18 to 25, who were trying to figure out how to play Frisbee golf and not have their Frisbee land in the creek. And I thought, we can do this. We can build that Frisbee golf course. I was talking to Daniel yesterday, Daniel Flahap, the the head of our health team, and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if what we did is built a fitness trail all the way around this campus and open it up to the community. Then I talked to Colleen Allman this morning, and they said that that the outreach committee is not only going to build a gaga pit out here, for the community and for us, and a gaga pit is a really fun kind of ball-oriented game in a octagonal pit that we just built at Lazy F for those guys, but we're looking at doing more than that. I still have this dream of building, okay, I'm up, Time's up, no, I'm sorry. I still have this dream of building a, a beautiful amphitheater right out here on this hillside and I get that it's going to influence the folks who love the youth that held the sled. We're not going to get any snow anymore, so who cares? <laughs> so an amphitheater where authors can come from the library and we build bridges with the library to offer things to the children or to adults. That that become a place of community gathering? That this become a place of community gathering? But that's not enough. 3,500 children go to bed hungry every night In Bellevue and Issaquah. 3,500. 3,500. That is inexcusable to me. And we can respond to that. We can respond to that as Republicans and Democrats and progressives and conservatives, we can come together at this table and we can respond to that beyond going to Crossroads or Hammond House or Sophia Way or Andrews Glenn. We can do something and create an organization that takes that on. To be that witness in this time with all of these things that are going on in the world, we can be that voice If we will take it on. And you know what? You know where we're starting all this? In the kitchen. Isn't it the perfect place to start all this? We have 55 young men that come into that room every Thursday night for dinner. Newport High School football team. And that kitchen is where their parents provide them food and dinner. That's the gathering place for the food that goes out to those organizations. And that kitchen is beginning to feel its age something like some of the other rest of us (laughs) as I am feeling my age today. The kitchen in most homes is the gathering place of the family. We're going to begin there to redo that kitchen. So I, I, I want us to really be thinking about this and that's where the what if comes in. What if we And I want you to start dreaming about how you would respond to that question. What if we could become a place where all aspects of the whole gun control debate can come in the safety of a, a church and just talk about it? What if we became that place? What if we became a place where the Northwest Championship Frisbee Golf Tournament happened? What if we became the place where authors would come and read to children out in the beautiful amphitheater? What if we became that place? I want to close with this story. You guys know I I coach cross-country over at Tyee and we had our first meet last Thursday. And I have the wonderful privilege of being the coach who gathers the whole team around before the meet and gets them shouting and excited and, you know, we have our shouting kind of thing that we do and reminding them that once again, we are a team. We are a whole team. The the team doesn't just consist of those best 10 runners. We have 122 kids on that team and every one of them is a part of that team, no matter who they are. And so the, you know, the whistle blows and they off and run and I mean you're looking at you know 250 kids out there because there were four middle schools, maybe more, running around and and our our lead guy broke the record uh, of the course record over at Kelsey Creek and I watched him as he f- crossed the finish line, took some deep breaths, got a little water and then went and began to jog around that place. Kelsey Creek, to try and find the runner who was in last place from Tyee. Every runner that crossed that finish line went and did the same thing. And by the time that young Robert, not his name, but young Robert, who is a special needs young man, who never can run the whole distance, came around the final corner everybody else who had finished Tyi began to run with him. And there's a loop that goes around and comes back to the finish line. And by the time that loop was coming around, they were chanting his name, they were applauding, they were helping him with the rhythm of his steps, and, and Robert ran the whole rest of the way, and when he finally crossed that finish line, and he did cross the finish line, It was as though he won the gold medal at the Olympics. That team erupted. And that is team. There's a power in that. And as you looked around, and I did, looked around at at some of the other adults were weeping. And some of the other middle schools were in absolute shock of this. And yet they got it. And I kept thinking about today in this table. We are a team. No matter where we come from. No matter where we disagree. No matter what our experience level may be as runners in the name of Christ. We are a team. And what if we all ran together towards some of these goals? What if we engaged each other in in ways that we could disagree and learn from each other in a degree of safety? What if we became that place in the community where they would say, oh, Aldersgate, yeah, that's where they fill in the blank. What if we did that? Because what I want to remind you is that what began in the idea and mind and heart of one person in Shadyside Presbyterian Church has grown into something that is worldwide. On the night that he was betrayed... Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, 11 of them at that point. And guess what? The whole purpose of that, at least from what we say now, is every one of those individuals seated around that table also finally came to the terms of what if. Because guess what happened? They took it on. They took it on. Every one of them scattered to different places with that. What if we did this? And the world began to transform because of those individuals centered on that one. What if? Well, guess what, friends? That's what we do at this table. We gather at this table. We are sent forth. We need a broader, more aggressive action-oriented vision of what we can be and what God is calling us to be. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you and for many. As often as you eat of this, do it in remembrance of me. In other words, (laughs) don't forget. You've got a role in this. And after the supper was over, he took the cup and it was a cup of a new beginning. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I chose to live my life sacrificially to transform others. As often as you drink of this, do it in remembrance of me. So friends, what's the idea that you have that could transform the world? What is it? Because God is calling you. Will you pray with me? God, as we gather in this place and we prepare for communion, help us ask the what-if question. Help us dream big. None of the smaller dream things anymore. Help us dream big about what we can do. And it's not about us. It's about transformation. It's not about us. It's about filling the needs that surround us. It's not about us. It's about those 3,500 children. It's not about us. It's about you. So guide us and direct us as we come forward for communion, remembering that all are welcome at this table of grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.